My book, The Island of Extraordinary Captives, is out in paperback this week. It tells a true story of history's most extraordinary prison camp, where more than a thousand so-called enemy aliens, including some of Europe's most celebrated artists, writers, musicians and academics, were sent by the British government in 1940, suspected of being Nazi spies. It's a New York Times recommended read, one of the New Yorker's best books of 2022 and a winner of the Wingate Literary Prize. Pick up a copy in all good bookstores. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an award-winning author, journalist and writer for film, television and video games. After graduating from Michigan State University with a degree in English literature, he travelled to Uzbekistan as a volunteer for the Peace Corps, he then returned to New York, where he worked as an author and editor, reporting on the Iraq War for Harper's Magazine and contributing literary criticism to the New York Times Book Review. A keen thinker on video games, in 2010 he published Extra Lives, Why Video Games Matter, a book that included a dissection of his experiences playing Grand Theft Auto 4 while abusing cocaine. His 2013 book, The Disaster Artist, was turned into an Oscar-nominated feature film directed by James Franco, and his short story, Aral, inspired Werner Herzog's 2016 film, Sultan Fire. My guest has also written for video games, including The Vanishing of Ethan Carter, Uncharted 4 and Gears of War 5, and in 2021 he co-developed the Apple TV series The Mosquito Coast, based on the Paul Theroux novel of the same title. 
Most recently, he wrote three episodes for the second season of Star Wars Andor, due to air in 2024. Welcome, Tom Bissell. Thank you. And hearing that all read out makes me realize how utterly bizarre my career has been (laughs) as a writer. Well, I have to say, we've known each other for, for a very long time. But when I was putting that together, I was just sort of struck by how much you've achieved in so many areas. Do you do you feel successful or does the fear of so that freelance fear never really leave you? Freelance fear never leaves me, ever. In fact, I'm in a, I'm in a bunch of it right now. There's a feeling that the phone is ringing, it feels good, you're getting work, but you're constantly terrified that the phone will stop ringing. The phone has stopped ringing on me at various points in my career. There was a point in the early oddies, 2003 to 2006 or seven, I was getting asked to write for magazines constantly, like dream pieces, foreign pieces, go here, go there. Oh, it's a crazy thing. Let's send Tom. And then one day the phone just stopped ringing and I stopped getting those calls. And I realized that was because there was a whole new generation of idiotic young narrative nonfiction writers who were willing to do even crazier things than I was willing to do for a few years that realization never left me that it's possible for it all just to dry up and go away. So therefore work as hard as you possibly can, never take any of it for granted and just keep moving, keep trying, keep trying to grab new opportunities, which I think is a partial explanation for how varied and weird my career has been because anytime there's a door that's opened, I don't walk through it. I charge through it. You know, I, I, I run toward the door as fast as I can because I don't have another job. I make my living entirely by my wits. And I realize that the moment I start thinking, oh, I'm getting jobs because I'm so talented or I'm so easy to work with, that's when the jobs will stop. You have to fight for every single scrap you get. Uh, yeah, I'm sure... Any, anyone who's freelance listening to this will recognize a lot of that. Can you can you switch off or do you just constantly feel guilty if you're not charging through those doors? Constantly feel guilty if I'm not charging through the doors because I, you have a family, I have a family. When there's a mouth to feed under your roof, the, the fear of not working, it becomes less like, oh, depressing, I suck. No, no, no. It's like, oh... My kid will not eat food if I don't start bringing in some some dinero here. It becomes much more existential and you become much less tolerant of your own piddle-paddle, fart around the house all day, think about writing. Oh, I feel guilty because I didn't write 200 words today or 2,000 words today for that matter. Now it's like, oh, I didn't write? Uh, calamity is about to ensue, uh, like real financial calamity. So it's nice that it, erodes a lot of your writerly delusions about the romantic quality of the work. I feel inspired today. I don't feel like writing today. Well, tough. You have to. (laughs) Yeah, right. You have to sit there and write. You wrote a very funny piece for for LitHub a couple of years ago. Um, It was titled How to Write Brackets Almost Anything, A Very Serious Guide. And in it, you sort of wrote about oscillating between writing a long-form magazine piece, getting discouraged, moving on to a narrative nonfiction book, becoming disillusioned, moving on to write a video game, then a TV show, then a short story. The idea being, I think, that everything is kind of hard and annoying and the grass is always a bit greener. Um, On that carousel, where are you right now? What are you focused on in, in that sort of suite of things? Right now, I'm focusing mostly on TV stuff. 
I've been a pretty fortunate TV writer. I've sold a bunch of things. A couple of them have even gotten made. But I cannot tell you, even with a fairly high batting average, how absolutely gutting it is when you work for six months on something and all the stars seem to align. You just feel like the red carpet is rolling out before you. You get talent attached. You get studio commitment. And then magically, it all just weirdly falls apart right before it's supposed to become real. And that's happened to me so many times now that your heart gets very calloused. Harder to break in some ways, which is useful, but it's never not absolutely gutting when something that you've poured so much time and effort in just fizzles. And and the, the crappy part about Hollywood is that how many people wound up reading all your hard work? 12 people? 15 people? You're writing for the smallest possible audience, but weirdly, it's also the most financially rewarding audience. So that's a, a whole brain mess in itself that you have to work out. Yeah. It's hard. It's all hard. Yeah, I was I mean I was I was actually going to ask you exactly about that. You know, this kind of life of being a cross discipline freelance writer, you know, in addition to being a, a gifted writer, you also, you know, who can hit deadlines and win awards and all of that stuff, you also need like an immense capacity for disappointment and rejection, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's true as well in in journalism, right? Being a freelance journalist as well, not not just in writing Hollywood scripts. You know, there are 10 rejections to every one acceptance and this is the life. How how well do you how well do you deal with rejection? And have you improved at that, do you think? I have. Uh a, a lot. I've improved a lot actually. I've always been pretty good with rejection and pretty good with praise. Praise makes me feel good for 10 minutes. Right. Rejection and bad reviews make me feel bad for 10 minutes. And then after the 10 minutes elapses, I'm back to just being myself and realize where the wheel has to hit the road again and the car has to move. I've never been that destroyed by criticism or rejection. I, I have a hard time understanding those who are because it's so baked in to the writer's dilemma that if you can't get your arms around that as quickly as possible, you're just in for a world of psychic torment. Yeah, right. Yeah. However, uh, my father died a couple of years ago, loved my father, was very close to him. Hey. And it began this odyssey, which I just wrote about, it's going to be in the next issue of Harper's, about Stoicism. So I sort of did a very deep dive into Stoicism, read Seneca, read Marcus Aurelius, read about Seneca, read about Marcus Aurelius. And one of the key tenets of Stoicism is practicing indifference to things you can't control. And in in Hollywood, man, this has helped me a lot. Failure now and rejection when projects fall apart, I ask myself, did I do everything I can to push the ball forward? And if I could look at myself in the mirror and said, I did my part, I have to remain indifferent to the parts of the process I couldn't control. And if there are parts of the process I could control that didn't, well, that teaches me something for next time. But if things are sabotaging my writing life that, I can't affect. How, why worry about them? As Marcus says, you're just you're inviting yourself to be miserable, and and it's a much wiser person just learns to let go of what he or she has no direct control over. Simon, I found this incredibly helpful as an emotional ballast uh, in the last few years, and I highly recommend it to anyone listening. That's great. Wow. Okay, lots to think on there and come back to as well. So, Tom, the uh, the premise of the podcast is I've asked you to pick the five video games you're going to put on your perfect console. I know you've owned a few in your time. Um, <laughs> All of them, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, why don't you tell us about your your first choice? Where, what was going on in your life when you when you first encountered this game, and what is it as well? So my list is, I don't want to say it's unique compared to your other guests, but I I, I laser focused on one thing. Every game we're going to talk about for me today is something that radically changed my expectation of what the medium could do. These aren't necessarily my favorite games, but they're the ones that just seismically shifted my expectation. Uh. And the first one, it could be swapped out for Legend of Zelda, but I know that's a very popular title. A lot of people you have and will talk to on the show will probably say Legend of Zelda. could easily be Legend of Zelda, but I'm going to say Metroid. I was probably in sixth or seventh grade, fifth grade possibly, I don't even remember, when I played Metroid, and it was the first game that did a lot of things I'd never experienced before. Backtracking, levels that were sort of walled off to you because you didn't have the right upgrade or the right ability. Secrets, good lord, the secrets. And this is before, this is pre-internet, this is pre, this is pre-information where when you were stuck on a game, you could call the Nintendo hotline, which was $4,000 a minute, I think. And often the people on it didn't know what the hell you were talking about. Uh, you know, I lived in a small town in rural Michigan. I didn't have a store to go to to buy, like, Nintendo Power. There was there was nothing. If you got stuck in these games, I felt like a medieval monk with a corrupt <laughs> translation of scripture, just looking at it like, I don't even know who to talk to about this. Like, I don't know where to bring this or go. And so my friend and I, Jeff Wanick, who was my best friend from kindergarten to like ninth grade, he and I played a lot of video games together and we were just in love with Metroid. And then we got to the part of the game where you just didn't know where to go. You beat the available bosses. There were some ledges and stuff that you could almost jump to, but you uh, couldn't quite uh, make it because you didn't have the, the freeze thing to freeze an enemy, use him as a ladder and then jump onto it. And you could become a morph ball and drop bombs, which is very helpful, but you d- didn't seem to do anything. And... We would just fire up Metroid occasionally and just goof around and try to figure out what to do. And then one day, Jeff rolled into a morph ball and laid some bombs at the bottom of one of those massive, like, drop-off pits, you know, with the platforms going up. He just laid some bombs and was rolling around, letting them blow them up, and suddenly the floor dropped out from underneath him. And we just looked at each other, and I'll never forget this, we looked at each other, tears came to my eyes, and we embraced, and the rest (laughs) of the game was unlocked. And it was one of the most thrilling moments of my life because this was a game that it was just stingily withholding so much information from you. No, t- nothing tutorialized that you could blow up four panels, at least that I don't remember. Yeah. And then suddenly we did it and the rest of the game was open. They don't make them like that anymore, do they? Like they real well. <laughs> one of my future games is kind of like that, but uh, that we'll talk about today. But it was, I didn't know games could give you that kind of experience. Like this, this unfolding sense of grandeur and mystery uh, that was really powerful. Zelda did a similar thing, but something about Metroid... Metroid was more opaque than Zelda in a lot of ways. And I really really respond to opacity in art, apparently, particularly (laughs) video game art. It's quite menacing as well, the world of Metroid. Vaguely oppressive, isn't it? And a a bit Ridley Scotty, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's like if Ridley Scott had swallowed Hanna-Barbera and then just started <laughs> uh, production designing a world. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's wonderful. It, it rewired my mind. And I think it was one of the first moments where I was like, oh, I'm going to be playing these things for the rest of my life. What a what a great scene, the two of you embracing there. So so how old were you when that happened? Well, whenever it came out, uh, if I were a journalist, <clears throat> I would have looked up the year Metroid came out, but uh, oh, what geez. is it, 86, 87? Yeah, I actually normally do that, but I didn't do it today for some reason. <laughs> great, you're probably counting on me to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Tom will know. Okay, yeah, it's around then, isn't it, for the, for the NES. Yeah. Okay, so, and... Um, I mean, you talked there about um, being at school and having a little buddy. What did you, did you want to be a writer at that time? Yeah, I was very lucky. As I said, I grew up in rural Michigan, not an incredibly lettered part of the country, shall we say. But my father is a Vietnam veteran, my late father, and he was friends with a writer named Philip Caputo, who wrote one of the first big bestsellers about the Vietnam War called The Rumor War. Through film, my father became friendly with Jim Harrison, another great writer who wrote Legends of the Fall, um, this is his most famous book, Dalva, wonderful writer. And Phil and Jim would come up to Upper Michigan every fall to go pheasant hunting with my dad, and I would see them. And just these two men were just such forces of nature to me, so smart, so interesting. They always had such amazing stories. You know, Phil was coming back from reporting on the, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. Jim was coming back from Hollywood, or he was palling around with Jack Nicholson and George Harrison. And so these two larger-than-life men just had this massive influence on me. So very early on, I got the writing bug. Right. You knew they were writers. I did, and I read their books. And that was what sort of, you know, I got out of the, the, the soda shop and started hitting the liquor cabinet of serious literature probably quite a bit earlier than I would otherwise, reading their books, which led me to other serious books. So I'm in fifth and sixth grade, and I'm reading like Thomas McGuane and John Updike, you know, writers that they were recommending to me. Right, wow. And so it gave me a real jump uh, in terms of how serious I got about writing. Jim never read anything I wrote, despite my showing it to him. Phil constantly discouraging me, constantly telling my dad, tell your kid this is an insane life. Tell him not to do it. And then I remember I was sophomore in high school, and I wrote a short story for a, for a creative writing class, and I gave it to Phil. Phil was tired. He just got done hunting. I remember he was all dirty. He had waiters on, or not waiters, but he had, uh, you know, those dungarees, orange dungarees, hey. and uh, gave him the story, and he went away for a little while. Oh, man, he has a powerful memory. He came back. He had a glass of wine. He smelled like a cigar because he was smoking a cigar out on our porch while he was reading the story. I swear, he came back in, sat down. He just looked at me, handed me the story, and he said, maybe you should keep doing this. And that was it. And that was one of my big vitamin shots of confidence that I got early on, that maybe I wasn't crazy to do this. This writer that I idolized and respected and loved looked at the piece of juvenilia that I'm sure would make me throw up today. But he, he looked in it and he said, okay, maybe he's got something. And uh, that was it. I was, I was snake bitten after that forever. Yeah. So he doomed you in that moment to the, this miserable <laughs> life. <laughs> it's a great life. It's let's, a great life, yeah. It's a great life. It's an amazing life. With, um, you know, everyone everyone knows that uh, Vietnam War veterans had a tough time after they got back. Was that true for your dad as well? Not in the sense that he was tormented or called like a baby killer or anything. I think a lot of those stories are somewhat apocryphal. Right. But he had PTSD. Yeah. 
his alcoholism was certainly not helped by the fact of his service. I mean, he was grievously wounded. He was a company commander, so he had to write the letters and make the calls when he lost his guys. It fucked him up. He was uh, he was a beautiful man, a wonderful man. I honor him. I loved, loved him and love him. But uh, he had demons. They were never outward demons. Like they were never demons that make me demons that made me feel I am a child and I am danger. And what Ralph Wiggum style, you know, <laughs> he was always so affectionate and so loving. But he was a storm cloud, and there was some thunder inside him, and I was never not aware of it. And uh, he never really got the hell that he could have. And sometimes I wonder, to my own sadness, what would have happened to him had he just had had he been born in a generation that encouraged that kind of introspection and that kind of help-seeking. But he wasn't, and so he didn't. But again, I, I have nothing but love and, and uh, longing for him. How did it, You said that you've, you've been working on this um, Harper's piece, which in part is wrestling with, with, um, with his passing. How did it feel coming back to that subject, I guess, after writing a book on it 20 years ago? Pretty good. Like, one of the things... I'm glad, most glad about is I got to write that book while he was alive and he could read it. And I went through the motions, certainly in the immediate hours after his death, where I was completely racked with, you know, shock and sadness because it happened very quickly and very suddenly. It wasn't unexpected, but it, it just happened fast. And I didn't really get a chance to properly say goodbye to him. But you know what? I wrote a book, like a, a monument to my, of my love for him that, that, whatever commercial success it have or didn't or didn't have mostly didn't have in this case it's a it's a like i said it's a monument to, to a son's love for his father and mm. so how many dads get to read loving books their children write about them and i realized after my initial grief and shock passed there was really nothing left for us to say to each other i was good with him and he was good with me and there's nothing that i wanted to say that i didn't and so once i realized that I felt okay about it, you know? I felt okay that I didn't get to, quote, say goodbye, because what was I going to say? Mm. I love you. He knew that. <laughs> yeah. He loved me. I knew that. We were yeah. fine. We were great. So the piece is just about learning not to be, the piece in Harper's, I should say, that it's about learning to fear death less, because I'm someone who, ha who had, still has some, but had a lot, an unusual amount of death anxiety. Mm. And uh, that's another thing stoicism helps with. Wonderful. Okay, Tom, why don't we come to your, your second game? Uh, can you tell us about Speaking of death anxiety, uh, <laughs> second game is called Resident Evil. Not the remake, the weird, utterly weird, maybe the weirdest game ever made uh, that combines 
SWAT team theatrics with haunted houses, with zombies, with monster movie sharks and spiders all wrapped around one of the most bizarre stories ever put to paper. And this is a game that, again, radically changed my expectation of what the medium could do. I don't recall ever being truly afraid before in a video game. I know there were horror games before Resident Evil, but Resident Evil is has an almost lysergic insidiousness, the way it creeps into your imagination and really unnerves you. And the first time those dogs jump through the window in that hallway on the right side of the house facing the stairs and you're walking down and the dogs come at you, I think you're only armed with a knife at that point. And they just tear you to shreds and that sends you back to the last fucking typewriter that you managed to save that day, you know and you yeah you realize like the number of hours you squander in that game backtracking and loading typewriter ribbons and going back and saving and moving ammo <laughs> here and there it's 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 this incredible juggling act of resources managing your fear managing your fear of the unknown and and kind of just learning the weird odd logic of the tricks of the game and <laughs> the puzzles and it's totally uh, sui generis as they say in Latin and I love the game I love everything about it even the atrocious script which even by the standards of its time was was horrid it frightened me it made me laugh and it genuinely shocked me and like it's a genuinely shocking game yeah. in, in all sorts of wonderful ways yeah it sort of mixes the like you say the jump scares of dogs crashing through glass but it's also got you know you're exploring a haunted house and it's also got that that really famous shot quite earlier in the game when the zombie turns its head you couldn't do you remember that sort of like little cinematic and like you say i mean it's so crudely drawn these days but it was terrifying wasn't it yeah and the first time one of them grabbed you yeah when you thought they were dead yes like that was new yeah it was video game enemies when they die they're dead but suddenly they're playing possum now and like (laughs) Uh, and the amount yeah. of ammo you waste just pumping bullets into into dead zombies just to make sure. Yeah. God, what a game. Yeah. I played that having just returned home from the Peace Corps, which you alluded to, lead and allude to, which you mentioned in your introduction to me. And I returned home with my tail in my legs, Simon. I failed. I, I washed out. I had a complete nervous crack up and came home. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's let's get into that. What took you out there? Um, I wanted to be a writer. I knew my rural Michigan background was not going to give me the kind of material I wanted. So I kind of went there as an experience harvester. I just wanted to vacuum up experiences. But I was also a very anxious person from a small town, did not like cities, didn't particularly like traveling, was very nervous about traveling, <laughs> nervous about new experiences. And I hated it about myself. I hated it. And it's so funny because now my daughter has a lot of the same anxieties. And I just look at her and think, oh, kiddo, 
um, I know your pain. And for me, it took me going to the former Soviet Union four years after the collapse to really just drop a neutron bomb on my anxieties about, about going places, about new experiences. Good news is it worked. Bad news was it worked so well that uh, I kind of became just a vagabond after that and right. was not happy just being stuck in this tiny little regional capital in Uzbekistan. Plus, I was engaged to a woman, my college sweetheart back here. That was a mess. And uh, I was the only American within hundreds of miles. I was isolated. I was young. Remember, this is my first real travel experience, and I'm in rural Uzbekistan. It was a lot. It was a lot to deal with. And well, what we have to do day by day, because I know you went there as a you know in order to become a writer, but you weren't there as a writer, were you? No, no. I taught English. I taught English to little kids, and those little kids' faces haunt me at least a couple times a month when I think about how I just abandoned them. And some days I think I'm going to rejoin the Peace Corps to make it up to these children who really liked me because unlike their teachers, whose instruction models was based on the old Soviet method of yelling until they memorize whatever you're saying, I played games with them and I had fun with them. And uh, I'll never forget their tears when I said I had to go home. Like I said, genuinely haunting a real failure of nerve on my part. I don't regret leaving. I needed to leave. I was going to lose my mind. Yeah, you could forgive yourself that, I think. I do forgive myself, but that doesn't mean you don't have the uh, aftertaste of regret about the whole thing. But I wound up back in my hometown, hadn't played games seriously in a while. In college, I really only played sports games on Sega Genesis with my roommates, dorm mates. A lot of NHL, 95. Like a good American. Yeah, like a lot of uh, Lakers, Celtics. John Madden. Yeah, a lot of John Madden. But before it had the license, I think. Didn't really play games, just had devolved totally to sports games. Came back, was back in my hometown, lonely, didn't know what the hell I was doing. Had no prospects and had some money from the, you know, washing out of the Peace Corps. They cut you a check at the end of it. And I went and bought a PlayStation. And I saw this game called Resident Evil. And I thought, well, this looks weird. And nothing could have prepared me for what I encountered when I, when I put that disc in a darkened living room late at night in my, in my late stepfather's home. Right, yeah, you're a long way from NHL football. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, so that was another game that made me realize, well, if games can be like engines of terror, ben. if they, they can provide mystery, I knew that. They can provide like a, a sense of world, a sense of adventure, a sense of wonder and awe. They can encourage your inventiveness as Metroid did. I didn't know that they could be the very seeds of unease, despair, and terror. And that was a very useful thing to know, to discover. Right. And then, so so you come back to, you're in New York at this point, and you are sort of getting your freelance journalist editor career going. How, how quickly were you able to make that start bringing in some money and all of that? Not terribly quickly. You know, I finished Resident Evil. I realized I had to get a job. Right. <laughs> and so I applied for a paper mail internship in my hometown. And just on a whim, I applied for the Harper's Magazine internship, which was my favorite magazine in high school. And to my shock, uh, the paper mail said no, and Harper said yes. Wow. So I moved to New York. Uh, this is five months after I quit the Peace Corps, and suddenly I'm in New York working for my favorite magazine. I mean, that felt a bit like a fairy tale. Like, right, yeah. I was like, well, I see the upside of having a complete psychological breakdown and fleeing <laughs> uh, 
from a job I was supposed to commit to for two years. And I wound up at Harper's and then uh, my good luck only continued. My first boss was a guy named Jerry Howard. Uh, this is after Harper's. I became his assistant at W.W. W. Norton, the great independent book publisher. Hey. Jerry Howard, the discoverer of David Foster Wallace and Irvin Welsh, Chuck Palahniuk, great guy, wonderful taste. He really took me under his wing. And he kind of made me, tempted me down the path a little while of being a literary editor, which I, I did do that for a while. I edited some books, first for Norton and then for Hole. But then I came to a great crossroads of, am I going to be an editor or am I going to be a writer? I published a couple little things at that point, but then a film was being made in my hometown of Escanaba, Michigan by Jeff Daniels called Escanaba in the Moonlight. And I pitched it to Harper as my old haunt saying, hey, I want to write a piece about watching my hometown get turned into a movie. And the editors there said, go for it. So I went. Great idea. Had never written magazine journalism before. Like my first magazine piece was for Harper's Magazine. Like that was strange. Like it doesn't typically happen that way. Right. And one of the greatest periods of joy in my life was the week I took aside to write that piece never really reported anything, had never written long-form magazine journalism, and the piece was written with just sheer joy. Here's me, took a week off of work from my editorial job. All I had to do was write. I didn't have anything else to do all day. I could just sit there and write paragraphs and look at my notes and come up with goofy stuff that made myself laugh. And I wrote this draft. I was like, this is pretty good. I sent it to my editor. He really liked it. He sent it to Lewis Lapham, the editor then of Harper's Magazine. Lewis really liked it to my astonishment. And two months later, I'm holding the magazine with the piece in it. That was another big crystallizing moment for me that, oh, I could do this. And then I quit my, my job and was thinking about writing a book about Uzbekistan. And what happens? Uh, September 11th happens. And suddenly this part of the world that I was very interested in and close to is now is then suddenly thrust into the center of world consciousness and wound up going to Afghanistan and wrote some journalism about that. My book about Central Asia was suddenly a much more commercially enticing prospect. My first book, a book about Uzbekistan called Chasing the Sea. So as you can see from my recounting the story, I got a lot of really just crazy lucky bounces. Yeah. You know, yeah. had I not wound up with Jerry had September 11th not happened, <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't have my career. Oh, what a world tragedy. But um, no, just like, had I not even seen mention that that movie was being made. And, and then a terrible, awful, horrible tragedy like September 11th, which it still is one of the worst days of my life that day. The fact that even that redounded to my weird benefit in some strange hey. way. It felt... I kind of felt like a, you know, a war profiteer in some ways, but it, all that stuff really, really just pushed me to further down the path. Let's come to your third game, Tom. These transitions are amazing, by the way. <laughs> I talked about terror and dread and then Resident Evil. I talked about being a war, profit, war profiteer. These are not planned, folks. This works very well. My third game <laughs> is Far Cry 2.
samangari What a game the greatest the greatest shooter ever made and if if you don't think so I don't want to hear a word uh, out of your pie hole. It's a first-person shooter published by Ubisoft. Creative director was, uh, I think, just a truly great game developer named Clint Hawking. And it is the most uncompromising and in many ways, like, weirdly uncommercial game uh, I've, I've ever seen. Here's the reasons why people hate it. These also double as the reasons I love it. The world is so oppressive and lonely and the wet, and there's not much to quote do in that crappy open world in that crappy Ubisoft open world video game way that has since developed where the, the map is filled with glyphs and icons and you go and you do some bullshit activity here and then oh another one pops up here and meanwhile you're just fighting people along the way. Far Cry 2 is not like that. The, the world is scary and lonely. Combat is harrowing. If you're picking up stray weapons on the fly, a lot of them explode. You occasionally have an attack of malaria. And if you don't have medicine, that complicates things. You have this buddy system that if you die, you basically get an extra life with one of your buddies shows up and saves you and pulls you out of the shit, uh, to use a Vietnam term. But they can die. And if they die, you don't have a buddy for a while until... A new buddy just sort of magically meets you in the bar and says, hey, I'm going to hang out with you for a while. You're a good dude. The uh, story in the game is very minimal. It's all vibes. It's all atmosphere. It's about these two warring African factions in an unnamed country, and you're a bad guy mercenary playing both sides. I'll never forget the mission where I think you have to go bomb a children's dental clinic, which is a point where or you have to steal the gas from a children's dental right, clinic, yeah. something like that. Like the game just tempts you down this path where you realize that that not only are you not the hero of this world, you might actually be the problem. And it's a really effective game about the hypnotic false power of violence. You don't solve anything. You're not a good guy. You do not make the world better through the use of force. And in fact, you just contribute more to its destruction. By the way, all that stuff is not overtly stated at all. I mean, a lot of that is stuff I'm taking from the game with my own experiences in the world. But there's a moment, the opening cinematic of that game, it's not really a cinematic, it's more of a like log flume ride that you can control the camera on. But you come to a checkpoint, and there's this checkpoint guard is kind of giving your driver a hard time and being a dick, and the, the driver bribes him and he lets you go. I've seen a lot of video games try to mimic what a war zone feels like, but that's the only moment I've ever played in a video game that actually felt like a real experience that I've had in a dicey place. Like just this sense of dread and menace and unease. Just realizing how the tiny razor-thin hair that you're standing on in certain situations where things could just... All someone has to do is just not like the way you look. Bam, you're out of the car. You're... You know, you're in the back of someone else's car. You're being questioned. Your passport's being taken. Right, right. All of which has happened to me, by the way. It really just depends on how someone else's day is going to determine <laughs> how your day is going to go. Right, right. And Far Cry 2 really, in that first moment, delivered on that feeling. And this, from then all uh, from then out, I was all in. I was like, oh, I love this game. And like I said, combat of that game is incredibly volatile. It's totally free form. 
as Clint told me when I interviewed him, you can't demo that game. It just shit just sort of happens, you know. And and yeah, uh, that there aren't like there's some of the some of the sequences have some orchestration to them, and you know enemies come here and then they pop out here. But ninety percent of the game, it's just free form combat encounters that just become what they become. Yeah, there's yeah. a fire mechanic in the game. Yeah, I was gonna say. The propagation, fire propagation. So you just get these wildfires that you cause. That, yes. The ravage. That you cause. <laughs> that ravage you, ravage the world, yeah. can quickly envelop you. Yeah. Propane tanks everywhere. Suddenly they're exploding and flying everywhere. Yeah, it's yeah. just exactly. And like you say, you, you have malaria as well. So you keep having these like, <laughs> every now and again, your vision will just go all blurry. And yeah, I mean, it, it would not get made today, I don't think. And it's certainly not by Ubisoft. Oh my gosh. But uh, <laughs> No, just look at what has become of that franchise. It's become yeah. every Far Cry game now is just a three-dimensional Excel spreadsheet where you're just checking off, you know, things to do. And I've liked a couple of them. Far Cry 4 in particular, I think, is 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 a pretty admirable recreation of the vibe of Far Cry 2. Yeah, but it doesn't have the meanness that is what you remember. Do you know what I mean? That's right. like the cruelty of that environment. The cruelty. Like you say, it's it's so it's not like if you want to get as many players through your game as possible, that's not the way to do it. But if you want to make a game that people really remember and talk about like we are, you know, however many years later, then that's the way to do it. Well, that, uh, what's one thing I took from my life as a game writer is Far Cry 2 is a game about death and violence and cruelty. It's really about cruelty. You prosper by being cruel in that game. You, you prosper by being amoral. And so whenever I've written games that have violent content, which is a lot of them, I mean, you really only have two choices. Like, you just lean into the violence and just own it yeah. and say, this is what this world is. Gears is a good example. Like, the people in that game do not have moral qualms about using force. And in fact, it's kind of a fascist world, which is something we leaned into a lot in the in the games I worked on. In any other game universe, the cog would be the bad guys, but in Gears, they're the good guys, just by virtue of having lizard men as enemies. And so I tried to lean into that ethos with Far Cry 2 as an example, that if you're going to make about a, a game about violence, don't dress it up. Be honest about it. Like, be honest about what the world is. Be honest about the meaning that your mechanics are communicating to the player. Because if the mechanics, you and I have talked about this, if the mechanics are saying life is cheap, then then the narrative should be telling you life is cheap. Which doesn't mean if, you know, your brother in arms goes down, you're not sad about it. But you cannot treat death in the Hollywood slow motion, no kind of way in those games because it's going to come off as hollow and insincere yeah. and cheap. Yeah. So it's, uh, Far Cry 2 came out. 2008 i think and eight that is also the same year where you you published a piece in the guardian and i've got a quote i could quote you from it you wrote between 2001 and 2006 i wrote several books and published more than 50 pieces of magazine journalism and criticism a total output of give or take four and a half thousand manuscript pages and then the in the piece you go on to say that that all sort of changed when you when you discovered grand theft auto 4 and pretty much on the same day cocaine it's a it's a remarkably <laughs> candid piece and you know really impressively honest and a good a good advert for how complete honesty in writing is the way to go um but yeah can, could you perhaps just tell us the story of of how things unraveled grand theft auto 4 almost made this list uh i didn't pick it i picked far cry 2 instead because those are two games that are emblematic of this time to me 2007 2008 where i think it was one of the greatest spans of video game releases ever just so many incredible games came out 
in that period. Games that like really pushed the ball forward, that were genuinely innovative and exciting and interesting. You could see how interested and excited the developers themselves were to be recreating some of these experiences. So 2007, 2008, I just went down the rabbit hole. I had some money from you know my writing that I'd banked up, and I just spent a couple of years playing video games. I wrote about how much I'd written in the previous five years and got mad at myself. Oh, I can't write anymore. I'm going to play video games, not realizing I couldn't write because I'd been writing nonstop for five years. Of course I could. Yeah, you're burnt out. <laughs> I was broken. I was burned out. I didn't have anything left. The tank was... The tank was fumes, if that. So I spent all this time playing a bunch of different games, and the two that really got to me, Far Cry 2 being one of them, which I think I played nine or ten times in the first couple of years after it came out, and Grand Theft Auto 4, which I played probably four or five times. And GTA, to me, had, it had a script that made me laugh. It had a script that made me think. I think it's portrait of like these struggling immigrants in the New York City that I knew and loved and, you know, had moved away from at that point, but still really appreciated. It was a pretty razor sharp dissection of a lot of New Yorkisms and New York things that I really appreciated. And I found Nico's plight as this amoral thug trying to make his way in the in the uh, dog eat dog capitalism of, of modern day America to be pretty affecting and just happened to play it on the day uh, a guy I knew introduced me to cocaine, which I'd tried once before. And then just kind of realized that cocaine and GTA were made for each other. I mean, they just are a wonderful combination. It is the white wine and fish of uh, substances <laughs> and video games, let me tell you. So wound up doing quite a bit of cocaine for the first few days we played it came down hard off of it and thought oh i'm not going to do that again but it just kept constantly kind of creeping back into my life here and there and then suddenly it was all over when i got a number i got a dealer and it's very hard to get out from under a drug when you've got a phone number because you call it and it took me a while a couple years to 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 just realize not only was it not making me feel good anymore, it was actually damaging any number of elements of my life. It got to the point where I couldn't write if I wasn't on cocaine. And that is not a great thing yeah. uh, for the, uh, the process of writing, to be dependent upon a substance because you're just getting this super amped, dishonest, hypercharged writing that isn't, it's not going to be fun to read. It certainly isn't fun to write. So writing just became this desperate grind for me. And it wasn't until I lost the dealer, lost the number. I think I just physically forced it away from me and then blocked everything I could. That it, you know, it took me a couple months, but I exercised it from my life. I, the piece is called Video Games, The Addiction, which I really resent because The Guardian did not run that headline by me. I don't think I was addicted to cocaine. I think I was abusing co cocaine. And there's a difference. Addiction, to me, implies a lack of self-control, and it implies you will literally do anything to continue messing yourself and your life up. Well, guess what? I never really lied to anyone. I didn't steal from anyone. It never damaged me so much that I hit rock bottom. My rock bottom was, you know, writing four pages a day instead of eight. Right. You know, staying up late and not sleeping that much, which, you know, I wasn't doing sleeping that much anyway, even before mm -hmm. cocaine entered my life. So... 
I was an abuser of cocaine. I, I really don't feel comfortable claiming the addiction mantle because it just doesn't accurately reflect my relationship to any of the substances I've, I've, I've abused. And, and I prefer to think of abuse rather than addiction in my own case because I don't feel like I was ever powerless before those substances. I, I prefer to think that I had more agency. And I think maybe possibly my steadfast belief in myself that I did have agency is what got me over some of the uglier humps of the experience. Right, right. Okay, Tom, let's come to your fourth game then. So, yeah, tell us about Transition's it. not so good. Transition's not as good. Well, it's okay. <laughs> uh, my fourth game is uh, Demon Souls. Demon Souls is a third-person action-adventure game <laughs> that, take, that takes place in a kingdom called Baldataria. It's, I mean, it's a living nightmare. The game is a living nightmare from start to finish. It, too, is opaque. It, too, is very freeform. Again, you're starting to see a theme here, which I didn't even realize until just now. Narrative opacity seems to be what I like, yeah. despite having worked on almost exclusively narrative cinematic style games. Apparently, I don't <laughs> like playing them. Uh, <laughs> opacity, like a series of rigid mechanics, uh, a constant sense of despair, oppression, confusion, an open world that is big, but not oppressively big. And, you know, a sense of exploration being the key driver of the experience. I've loved all of the Souls games. I think the only one I never finished is Dark Souls 3. But Demon Souls, if, if only for its online experience of being invaded by another player yeah. who can kill you and literally erase hours of painstaking effort um, and grief you, uh, that introduction to my game playing experience was, was mind jolting to say the least and then that started me on a brief career of of how would i put it an aspiring griefer myself in diva souls yeah i got the clerics build the cleric sucked i've always played cleric in all the games because it's the worst build until the very end when you get something called plague and plague is very useful because you just spray it on someone and run away from them and you just watch as their health just drains and drains and drains and drains. And if they don't have a very particular ingredient to stop themselves from dying, they will die. So your job is to spray them with plague and then somehow frustrate from them getting back to the, uh, to the exit point, the portal that brings them back to the, the nexus. And so I probably ruined dozens of people's nights uh, over a period of several weeks where I just was the plague guy and uh, collected for a while just a truly astonishingly hateful collection of PlayStation Network messages from people <laughs> <laughs> wishing any number of calamities on me. 
which yeah. I guess just proves the point that the abused grow up to abuse, uh, which is what happened to me. You could have had a whole other career as a YouTuber, the plague guy, dot TV. <laughs> hey, not too late. Not too late. If my uh, writing career just falls apart, I'm off to Twitch as the plague guy. Thank you. Great advice. Will you be my manager is the question? I mean, I'll give you some advice on build. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but Demon Souls especially after just a rut of big top heavy narrative games where everything's tutorialized, where everything is just spelled out, you know, the kind of call of duty school of game design where a character says, Hey, follow me. And then they turn around and follow is written above them. And then like the, the, the mission, um, slug up at the top of screen says, follow Jenkins or whatever. It's like this literally three different prompts. And look, I understand. A VO as well. Yeah. Hey, you're going to follow me Hey, follow me. Follow me. (laughs) What are you doing over there? And as someone who has sat through playtests and seen the shit that I have written just not communicate adequately, (laughs) the completely obvious thing that I'm trying to communicate, I get why all that is there. But what I admire about Demon Souls is it just says, eh, fuck you. (laughs) You Yeah, they just don't care, do they? (laughs) They just don't care. They do not care about player comfort, player comprehension. And the fact in that game that you find an NPC, and this is the most brilliant part of the whole game. I love this so much. You meet Yurt. You know Yurt, the knight with the tall helmet? He has a creepy voice, and he clearly doesn't mean well, but he's like, huh? thank you for letting me out of this cage, you know? (laughs) And you're thinking, oh, I should kill this guy. I should clearly kill this guy. But then you don't. Because you're like, oh, they wouldn't be that obvious about it. Well, all Yurt goes back to the Nexus and just starts killing NPCs one by one by one. Yeah. NPCs who who represent shops in the game, don't they? So you can no longer buy items from these dead characters. Yes. Yes. It's incredible. It's one... (laughs) It's one of the most satanic decisions I've ever seen in a commercially intended game. Because Yurt killed fully 80% of my merchants on my first run through of Demon Souls. He killed almost all of yeah. them until I figured out what was happening. And I didn't know what had happened. I was like, why are they, wait, they're not coming back? What, what's going on here? Yeah. And I had to go into some forum and then I was told, oh, you didn't kill Yurt? Well, you should have really killed Yurt. You're going to have to start all over now. And I remember just looking into the heavens and rending my garments and just <laughs> saying, how could anyone do this? And then I think a big smile came over my face and I realized that's what makes this game so interesting and infernal and just wonderfully diabolical. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like the Far Cry 2 thing again, isn't it? Just doing a sort of slightly... Uh, you know, a, a world that sort of hates the player makes it very memorable for a smaller subset of players, but but those players will absolutely remember it for their whole lives, won't they? Yeah. Um, so Demon's Souls came out in 2009, and it was the year before that that you had one of your uh, piece uh, you know, published in the New Yorker, a profile of Cliff Blazinski. Um, do you remember how you pitched that piece to them? Yes. Uh, I've been trying to write for The New Yorker for several years, as one does. You're a fellow New Yorker contributor, so you know you understand what that magazine means to you as a writer. It's the best magazine in the world, maybe the best magazine that ever was, certainly in the English language world. So getting to write for it is significant. It means something. There was a young editor there named Leo Carey, 
who'd been trying to, quote, get me into the magazine for a while, got very close with the profile of Jack Black, which fell through, which was a heartbreaker. What, uh, why did it fall through? Uh, let's see. His availability, uh, I want to say. That's so annoying. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. You're, you're asking the real questions here. Um, and then I met a woman named Heather Chap- uh, Chaplin, who wrote a great book about games called Smart Bomb, like way before Extra Live. She was on this case, like as games being interesting culture things <laughs> worthy of discussion. Heather was on the case way before all us pinheads came along and feasted on the carrion of her of her uh, original insight that this was stuff worth writing about. She just dropped into conversation. Oh, you know who'd be a good New Yorker subject? Cliff Blazinski. And I was like, the Gears of War guy? She's like, no, Cliff is fascinating. And she just told me a bit about him. I said Leo to Leo, hey, would you be interested in a profile of this guy? And I wrote a bit about him. Not that much about video game designers had been in the magazine yet. I think Will Wright had yes. a piece about yeah. him. And uh, maybe Miyamoto as well. There's uh, is it John Seabrook piece. I don't f- oh, you're right. Anyway, I don't know. Let's let's uh, check that. Let's fact check that. <laughs> but I was one of the first, certainly one of the first pieces in. The, I wrote one of the first pieces in the magazine about like AAA commercial action gamey stuff. And you know, kudos to them for recognizing that. Oh, that this you know, the Gears was a hugely successful game at the time, and cliff you know was cliff's a good guy and he and i remain you know friendly Uh, i don't know if we're friends but i've known him for 15 years you know and we chat occasionally and keep up good guy really good guy and i remember at one point when i was interviewing him he's like turn on he's like turn off the recorder and so i did and he's like why do you want to write about why does the new yorker want to know about this is this are you just gonna like sandbag me (laughs) and i'm like dude I beat Gears of War 1 on insane difficulty. You know, I'm not here to like make fun of anybody. Right, right. But I could tell like there was a lot of nervousness at the studio sure, about. Yeah, yeah. The one regret I have about that piece, and it is a real one and a profound one, is that I contributed to this cult of the creative director, design lead thing. Right. Cliff had a lot to do with that game. Dave Nash, Chris Perna, Lee Perry, Rod Ferguson... Other people that I'm not remembering right now, they all had just as much as Cliff had to do with that game. Yeah. And I now just kind of grind my teeth to think that they all had to sit there smiling while I asked them questions about what it's like to work with Cliff, <laughs> when just how galling that must have been. And they had to sit there and willingly just front, because he was the public face of the game. It yeah, was an yeah. internally agreed thing within Epic, I'm sure. Cliff played the role. They accepted it. He was very helpful to the marketing of the game, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, now that I've been on a lot of video game teams, if I were on a team where there was one guy that was like, and again, I'm not putting this on Cliff. I'm not putting this on Cliff. Yeah. God love Cliff. But if there was one guy on the team who'd just been, you know, Lady of the Lake, Arthurized, <laughs> you shall be the public face of this game. And yeah. Woe to the work everyone else contributes. That would have driven and would today drive me nuts. So I contributed to Radamuk auteurism in game writing that uh, I, in any case, I reject and even impugn today because I don't think it's an act of an act of reflection of any collaborative. Right. It's tough to do a story or a, or a documentary or anything though without without a lead character, right? Well, that's that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. 
one way one way in which our need for narrative actually locks us into very unhealthy yeah assumptions about the way the world works right 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 i remember you telling me that um i mean but part of the thing i i run into this a lot when i'm trying to interview like i don't know let's say a designer from nintendo for the new yorker say and you you convince your editor at the new yorker to to go okay yeah yeah go and try and speak to them and then you have the job of trying to convince nintendo or whoever it is to allow you to speak to them so you just feel like you're double pitching in both directions and i remember you telling me that what epic said oh look if we do this would you would you give us the cover <laughs> how did that go down when you when you asked uh, your editor <laughs> so some some publicist person at epic or maybe it was Microsoft. I don't know. They weren't getting a lot of queries from the New Yorker in 2008 or 2009, whatever the hell I published it. 2007, I guess, is when I wrote it. Uh, the person said, well, we'll give you Cliff. We'll give you access if we can have the cover. And I took that back to my editor and he said, do they not know that our cover is usually a whimsical illustration? <laughs> a whimsical illustration, which I thought was a perfectly phrased... Of a chainsaw gun, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't get the cover. Uh, I don't think anything's ever really gotten the cover, but um, I would be curious. Has there ever been like a feature piece in the magazine that was, well, no, Jeffrey Tubin when he was writing about OJ, one of the New Yorker covers from the, uh, from the 90s was just a glass of orange juice. So I think that qualifies. But again, whimsically qualifies. Right, yeah. Crucially. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, I think they only ever do that with a news peg, don't they? But, and it's very sparingly. Yes. I'm not an expert by any means. Um, okay. Oh, gosh, Tom, I've got so much to ask you and so little time. This is terrible. But um, there's no reason we can't do a three-hour podcast. Yeah, I don't... well, okay. Well, I'm going to... Uh, well, we will run a little bit long if you're happy to to do that. So, you, I mean, we've been talking about Epic Games. More recently, you, you were, I think... And tell me if we can't talk about this, but I think you were going to, you live in, in the Hollywood Hills, don't you? And yep. I've been to your place. It's amazing. But you were going to move, I think, weren't you, to go and work at, at Epic at one point? And then that fell through and you decided maybe not to write games anymore. Am I telling the story wrong here? Or what what happened Completely with all Completely wrong. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. My first job ever writing video games was at Epic. Uh, uh, and it was because Microsoft, for the deluxe edition of, of uh, Gears of War 3, because of my Cliff profile, they were like, do you want to write the deluxe art book that comes with um, the game? Uh. And I'm like, well, what is that? And so they showed me some of the previous art books, and I was like, oh, I can do better than this. So I wrote a little tiny book that I'm very proud of. It's on my ad card and, you know, also buy, because I, I think it's a pretty terrific little book. It's like a 15,000-word sequel to extra lives in some ways you know a kind of restatement of my thoughts about violence and video games and design and etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's also my way of rectifying the the wrong i did to the other designers at epic who, whom i featured heavily in the book right yeah uh from my cliff you know my my cliff piece uh while i was there interviewing rod ferguson who has since become you know a brother to me and one of my dearest friends he mentioned they were looking for writers for gear for gears of war judgment and I had just sort of gotten my feet wet as a aspiring video game writer because I hooked up with a dude named Rob Auten, who had written a bunch of games for UB back in the day. And Rob was looking for a writing partner. He took, we met each other. We agreed we were going to do this. We got a job right away writing an earlier version of Far Cry 3. Right. 
canceled. I've, I've been hired to write three Far Cry games and every single one of them was canceled. That's fun. Writing a sequel to your favorite game, game is canceled, not once, three times. So we had the Ubisoft job at that point. This Gears of War Judgment thing came up. Rod mentioned during my interview for this epic book, oh, we're looking for writers. And I said, well, hey, I love Gears. Can we throw our hats into the ring? And he's like, can you write interactive? And I was like, God damn right I can. I didn't know if I could, but I figured it was worth trying. He gave us an audition. We got the job. And then from there, it just, I started writing games and spending a lot of time in Raleigh for a year working on that game. Uh, they then hired me to write Gears of War 4, the epic Gears of War 4, uh, which never happened because they burned the boats and sold the franchise and it went over to the coalition. Rob and I went on to work for e Electronic Arts. Uh, I started working for Naughty Dog after meeting Amy Hedig. She sort of brought me in to help her on Uncharted 4. Rod goes to the Coalition, starts Gears of War 4. So suddenly I'm working on Uncharted 4 and Gears of War 4 at the same Yikes. time, which was a bit of a mind yeah. fuck. You know, two pretty big, significant franchises, sure. similar in a lot of ways. I felt pretty, pretty blessed at that moment. But the game writing stuff just happened real fast. And not to say I haven't had a lot of heartbreaks because, you know, lots of games that I've worked on that have really been passionate about just have fallen through or even kind of turned out to not be very good. And I've wound up having to take some muddy jobs working on games that were nightmares. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I've been just incredibly blessed. So I was never planning to move to Raleigh. I moved here to just be closer to the entertainment industry generally. Right. And because when you record, it's almost always here in LA. And I was sick of flying from Portland to LA for recording sessions and flying back. So I was like, why don't we just move here. My partner, Trisha, is is an actor, so it was better for her to be here. So that was sort of how it all happened. But, you know, since 2010, I've, I think I'm credited on, God, like 14 games or something. Like, it's been a pretty steady gig and um, a really fun gig. And then after Gears 5, I just was kind of done because it was a game I wrote almost entirely by myself. Um, the, the narrative stuff, the, the multiplayer stuff, lots of help from some really talented young guys at the coalition who were just fantastic. But, uh, it, it's, you know, I think that script had to have been 2000 pages at yeah, least yeah. You know, when you bundle up all the stuff together. And at the end of that, I was just like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. Like it's going to kill me. Um, it was really hard. So, uh, kind of just that was when I ran toward the TV door and uh, have not, uh, luckily, have not felt the need to run toward another door yeah. quite yet. All right, Tom, let's come to your, your fifth and your, your final game on this list. A more recent title, UK Made. Can you tell us about it? Uh, my fifth title, and in many ways, I think it's my favorite of all the games on this list, is Sea of Thieves. Rare's open world, narratively opaque, <laughs> adventure encouraging, <laughs> like friendship simulator meets pirate fighting sandbox. Friendship game. on the high seas. Um, <laughs> friendship on the high seas. And I'll tell you why I love this game. During the pandemic, I think I played 
four to 500 hours of Sea of Thieves, always with the same group of oh, people. Wow. We played at night after night after night, always finding new goofy ways to amuse ourselves, always finding new fun mechanics to just futz around with and mess with. So you had with. an actual ship's crew. Yeah, we had a crew. We had a we had a, we had our uh, our livery or is it livery or livery our livery colors. Uh-huh. Like we had everything down. We had just a system because you had to stock the ship and you had to like do everything. Yeah. It makes being on a ship like everybody has a job. If you're not steering the ship, you're watching for rocks. If you're not watching for rocks, you're minding like you're on the telescope looking around for other people because there's always at least one or two other people, sometimes as many as six other ships in the server with That's you. It. And if you cross paths with another player, you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe you're all going to drink grog together and play music on your banjos and dance on the deck. Maybe they're going to torpedo you or hit you with a cannonball and steal all your shit and destroy like hours of pirating that you've been doing. It's an incredibly evocative, incredibly fun, utterly unique game where it's just, the play is totally unstructured. You just determine the kind of experience you're going to have depending on how you want to play. Maybe you help people. I've run into pirates that just decide to help you and just guide you along. I've met pirates, this is one of the weirdest experiences, had a ship full of treasure, they attacked us, we were sinking, they all jumped over, started fixing our ship, <laughs> and putting the treasure back on the ship. Meanwhile, all of our swords or guns are up. Like, what are these guys doing? What are these guys doing? And then they all just sailed away <laughs> after causing terror and then delivering salvation. And I didn't know if they just did that because they felt sorry for what the crappy fight we put up. That feels vaguely abusive, to be honest. <laughs> it does. It does. It was. It did. But... It's a game that uh, has brought me so much joy, so much surprise. And, you know, the night my dad the, the night my dad died, I was on Sea of Thieves playing with my crew, one of whom had also lost his dad. And I remember the two of us just talking about our dads crying and playing Sea of Thieves, digging up treasure, cooking chicken legs on these little tiny desert mm. islands, and just laughing and having a good time. What more can you say about a game that in, on an incredibly dark day it brings you joy and relief and connection. So many games try to create this sense of friendship and connection and their mechanics always undermine right, right. what they're trying to do. Sea of Thieves, to me, is a masterpiece of a game design that encourages the actual emotions it's trying to evoke in the player. Hey. I love it. I mean, I want to play it right now. Let's go play it right now, Simon, because it's... it's I've, I'm curious, have you played it much? I have not played it that much. I think I tried, but, uh, you know, I often, with these very lauded multiplayer games, I often struggle to, like, find a group that are there sort of every... You need, <clears> you <throat> need to go back every night, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're in different time zones, so that's yeah, never yeah. going to work. Yeah. But if you have uh, space for a cabin boy... <laughs> <laughs> I always have space for a cabin boy, so Always. <laughs> okay, so, Tom... Let's look at your console here. So we've got uh, Metroid, Resident Evil, Far Cry 2, Demon's Souls, and Sea of Thieves. Not bad. Not a bad list. Not a bad list. That's a good console. You Okay, we need, obviously, persistent internet for yeah. at least two of these games to work, so let's just yeah, see yeah. we have that. Yeah, this is my console, and I'm going to call it the Parkinator <laughs> 2000. Oh, a tribute. Because <laughs> I want to play Sea of Thieves with you. Oh. And I think if I brand the console with your name 
just out of narcissistic curiosity, if nothing else, you will. You, you will I'll have you to will, show you up. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to show up. Exactly. Okay. All right, Tom, before I let you go. Um, so you wrote a wonderful piece for Grantlands, the sadly defunct site, uh, in 2013 called Poison Tree. Again, about, about games. It's the last thing I wrote about video games. Was it? The very last thing. That's, yes. that's terrible, but it's a great piece and people should go and read it. But uh, you wrote in it, almost everyone I know who loves video games, myself included, is broken in some fundamental way. With their ceaseless activity and risk-reward compulsion loops, games soothe broken people. I think about that line a lot, actually. And I think, uh, you know, I suppose in a sense, everyone who's human experiences brokenness, right? At one time or another, or in one way or another. Yeah. But do you think games attract people with a you know, particular kind of brokenness? And I'm talking about, I suppose, people who play games, who really play games. You know? Well, there was another line in that piece that we talked about once, that um, when you hear an argument that you don't like, you try to destroy the person viewing it. And that is video game logic in its most distilled form. Opposition, destroy it. I wrote that piece when I noticed the, quote, discourse, uh, a word I despise around video games, was getting real negative. Worse yet, I seem to be attracting a lot of vitriol from from the game's cognoscenti, which kind of alarmed me because I never set out to be the face of anything. I'm the most like, I'm not a joiner of anything, Simon. Like, I'm not an activist. I'm not a cause guy. I've never been to a march. Like, I am not a joiner of anything, no matter how worthy the cause. It is not my inclination to be the face of anything for better or for worse. I'm not saying this to congratulate myself, by the way. It's just my own personality. Sure. And, you know, these Grand Land pieces would come out and there'd be discussion of them. And, like, over the couple of years I wrote for Grand Land, I just noticed that, like, my pieces were getting, I thought they were getting stronger, but, like, the number of, quote, haters that they had seemed to be multiplying almost, you know, by the piece. And... And it wasn't just happening to me. I wasn't, I'm not saying this to say pity me. It was a general coarsening of the dialogue around games and how much, right. how much of it was getting darker and more negative and weirder. GDC had a dark edge all of a sudden. People were like just dissing each other all the time. And uh, it got so far from the spirit of 2009, 2010, where Michael Abbott was doing Brainy Gamer and there was Chris Dolan was writing Save the Robot and there was just so much smart, fun writing about games and everyone just seemed to be in it together. Four years later, everyone was at each other's throats. So I decided I'm not going to write about games anymore. And I wrote a piece called Poison Tree about GTA V, uh, just kind of lamenting the, the, the state to which things had gotten. Spoiler alert, they were only going to get worse, right? And in most cases, much worse. And I feel like the only way to really wade into the video game debate now is just by ignoring the fact that a sizable vocal minority of the game playing audience seem to be sociopathic. Do games attract those kind of people? I don't know. Star Wars fandom has a lot of seeming sociopaths in it. Right. Sports seems to have a lot of sociopaths in it. What's the common denominator here? Young men who feel powerless in most areas of their life channel all of their fury and their rage and their longing into the thing that they love. And if you don't love it the way that you, they do, if you don't love it as purely as they do, they want to hurt you. 
this is a young man thing. It's awful. It's destructive. It drives me crazy. I want to hunt these people, these guys, and try to slap some sense in them and tell them you don't have to be like this. I don't know what to do. You've seen it carry over into Trumpism. You've seen it carry over into American politics. It is a virus. It's insidious. And it's gotten much worse than it was when I wrote that piece. And it fills me with despair. Well, that's a happy note to end on, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we can talk about CFE some more. Uh, oh, gosh. I mean, okay, well, to actually end on a happy note. Yeah, I just want to say thank you as well for, you know, you've been so supportive. And I think people listening to this will, will you know, will see what a lovely guy you are. But to me personally, you've just been such an encouragement over the years. And, you know, when I started writing about gays for some of these American publications, not everyone is super friendly and, and you were very friendly. And I really appreciate that. So thank you for your kindness. You don't need to thank me. I prided myself on being, you know, the literary guy writing about video games. Part of me was carrying this flame as just like, these things are worth talking about. You know, I'm a book guy, a literary guy. Listen to me. These things are worth talking about. And then there were suddenly a bunch of people of that ilk. Ilk's just such an inherently pejorative phrase. There were a bunch of people of that stripe. But then you came along, just you, you're, you're such a wonderful writer. Oh, bless you. And uh, your friendship has meant an incredible amount to me too and now while the audience throws up yeah uh, perhaps we should say our goodbyes alright thank you Tom thank you for doing this I really appreciate it So yeah, uh, obviously I used an AI version of Tom Bissell's voice to add all of that praise in at the end. Uh, I'm sorry about that. I would have taken it out, obviously, but uh, it was uh, I just couldn't get a neat ending <laughs> with uh, us saying our goodbyes uh, without a bit of that in. So obviously uh, hugely embarrassed about that, uh, even though Tom was being very genuine and, and very lovely. But um uh, I hope you weren't sick in your cars or on your commute from having to listen to that. All of that aside, what a what a wonderful chat that was and what a brilliant thinker Tom Bissell is on games. Uh, if you have been reading about games for any length of time, if you're interested in uh, the way that critics think about games, then you almost certainly will have come across Tom's work over the years. And of course, it's almost undoubtable that you've played games that Tom has written the words for uh, and probably seen films and watched TV shows. Uh, he is an inc incredibly prolific uh, writer not only of criticism and long-form features, but also of mainstream entertainment. So uh, we have we have a lot to be grateful to Tom for. And yes, I am certainly very grateful for, for his time talking to me there. Uh, I loved hearing his thoughts on his games, his reflections on his time writing about games, his reflection on his time writing for games, uh, and some interesting insights, I, I expect, for, for some listeners into some of the ways that these things work i yeah i hope you can listen to that conversation in the spirit that both of us intended it to be which was just a warm celebration of of video games and what they mean to both of us and what writing about them has meant to both of us i'll, I'll stop apologizing now i'm sure it's fine <laughs> 
Okay, well, if it's not, then you can write to me at myperfectconsult at gmail.com with your criticisms and also, of course, with any thoughts you have about the podcast, with any suggestions for guests and things like that. We will be launching some new features for the My Perfect Console community uh, at some point over the the summer. I'm not quite sure when this episode is going to come out, but please look out for that. I will give you more details on here when it's live. But you can follow the podcast on Twitter at My Perfect Console with the O's removed from console, uh, where I'll I'll post about that as and when it's ready and out. Uh, you can also follow on Instagram at My Perfect Consoles with the O's included. And you can follow me on Twitter at Simon Parkin. Uh, if you would like to get your episodes a little early and ad free, then hop along to Acast Plus, uh, search for My Perfect Console and become an early access supporter. I don't think there's any other business. If you've stuck, <laughs> stuck with me until this point, thank you. I do appreciate it. And of course, I will be back again next week with one more guest, five games and another perfect console. Until then, goodbye.